Hello, fellow Blue Earther, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm Lauren Esbitt, and my guest today is Gail Bradbrook, a British activist and co-founder of the environmental social movement Extinction Rebellion. Gail, who's been involved in activism since she was a teenager, tells me why she believes civil disobedience on a large scale can bring about the change that's needed. We also discuss how economic systems and the climate movement are linked and why we all need to be willing to come up with a better solution to save our planet. Hi Gail, it's lovely to have you on the Blue Earth pod today. It's really great to be here, thank you. You are sitting on a panel at the summit in a month's time. The title of the panel is called New Power Lines, Employee Expectations in a Climate Crisis. What do you think you will be discussing on that panel? Well, I think from my perspective, um, I'm increasingly thinking it's important that people recognise we have a, a global political economic system that's hardwired to destroy life on Earth. It incentivizes harm and it's got a mechanism that's cancerous baked in. It wants to grow no matter what. And in the face of that, people who are employed in different corporations, companies, even uh, companies with good purpose and good intentions, are likely to find themselves being compromised uh, and, and, and placed in service to the destruction of the planet. And I, and I include, and I especially in some ways mean people who are sort of on the ESG side of things, environmental social governance side of things. And so, you know, the, the question then is, what, what does that require of people in, in those positions? What's their responsibilities in, the, in these times? And, and how can we support people to take action together? Are you expecting a very polarised opinions when you're speaking on the panel? I don't really know what people think in all honesty, but one of the reasons I wanted to come was I think it's really essential that we're in dialogue these days. So what I've just said, I could back up with many examples and, um, you know, data and so on. As an example, in terms of ESG, I had a whistleblower come to me recently and we did a blog together on, on Chris Skinner's Financer blog site. Uh, um, Tariq Fancy, who was the CIO of BlackRock, wrote a four-parter on, on ESG saying that he thought it was actively harmful. Then talking about the sort of growth-based paradigm that we live in, uh, because there's this idea that we can have green growth, it really is something that's been thoroughly debunked now. And I just think we just have to get over ourselves and have that conversation and sort of have a grown up conversation really about what a, a, a healthy economic system might look like. So will it be polarised? I sort of doubt it because my understanding is that people recognise that something's deeply wrong. I mean, occasionally people sort of think, well, we haven't got time to change the system, so therefore we should work with what we have and try and persuade people to make change from that place. So there was an interesting debate recently between a green growth of Professor Sam Frankenhauser and the degrowth of Jason, Professor Jason Hickel. And I think really what Sam was saying on that was actually, he just thought it was tactically better to talk about green growth. And there, therein lies an interesting conversation. I'm assuming, and this is an assumption, of course, um, that green growth and um, economic growth um, don't go in line with each other. They're very separate things. 
Basically, the the concept of growth is based into this measure of GDP, and GDP measures all of the activity in an economic system. And the idea with green growth would be that the the, the GDP is growing, but you still have a sort of sustainable basis to the economic system. So you still have growth, but it's sustainable. Um, And it's a bit like saying you could have the sustainable growth of a cell within your body. But actually, in reality, human beings grow to a certain size. And if a cell within your body carried on growing, you'd know what to call it. It'd be called cancer and we'd be worried and we'd have to treat it, right? So one of the ideas baked into the concept of, 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 of green growth is this, it gets a bit sort of fancy and technical, but it's called decoupling. It's the idea that carbon emissions and other forms of planetary destruction will decouple from economic growth. And there was a review in the literature of 835 different papers looking for evidence that that's true. And it's not true. That was the conclusion. It was a massive literature review of all the literature. What you do have is what's called partial decoupling. You can have some growth that that happens without the destruction of the planet. You can have... So so if you close down coal-fired power stations, for example, growth may carry on and carbon emissions decrease. The issue that we've got in a time of climate and ecological emergency is several-fold. One is that the the decoupling has to go quickly enough and, and be completed. And that's where the problem lies. Now, what you can have is the growth of certain sectors. You can have... Uh, the growth of uh, renewable technologies, the growth of regenerative agriculture, um, the growth of uh, businesses that upcycle, reuse materials and so on. So it's not that we don't want certain sectors to grow, but growth as measured by GDP in a green way, that's not going to happen. The other problem with so-called green growth is that on on other measures of planetary destruction, so the health of our soils, health of our water, uh, biodiversity in the face of the sixth mass extinction, not any evidence as far as I know. I think the evidence is in the other direction that that green growth is even possible. And then green growth, as it's been uh, defined in certain plans, it relies on a couple of things. One is it's unjust. It, it relies on the continual exploitation and extraction of material resources from global south communities and countries. And it also relies on negative emission technologies, such as what's called um you know, BECs, so where you, you burn biomass and then you capture the carbon and store it. There was a review of carbon capture and storage recently. It's really under, it, it, it's in the, this month's, um, so I'm talking about September the 10th, um, New Scientist. It's not working, basically. Um, we already know how you capture carbon and store it. It's called nature. Uh, I'm not against those technologies, by the way, but just to to sort of say you can have green growth and rely on an unproven, not working technology is nonsense, right? And And I think underpinning this, and that's what I'm really wanting to be in dialogue about, is that we, I think we have a sort of sociopathic system that gets us to harm the planet and gets us to collude with it. And it's it's sort of like the emperor's got no clothes on. There's lots of emperors running around naked and we've got to talk about it. You know, what do we really, really have to do to meet this crisis? And if, we, if we're if we sort of pretending and going along with this pretense that we can have sort of business as usual, but it just gets a bit more greener and we have a bit of a sort of, we give a few examples of a circular economy and now we all believe that that's sort of what's going to emerge. I, I just think it's, this, it's there's sort of a self-delusion going off. So with all the language and all the, and all the things that you've 
been talking about, I would assume then that you sit across both the sciences and politics. So can you explain how you came to be in the position that you're in now? Yeah, thanks, Laura. I mean, I've been interested in change since I was since I've been thinking, I think, and always curious really about why, why things are the way they are, why, um, as a as a little girl, I wondered why animals had to suffer so much, why why things were set up like that. And I I did a you know a PhD. I had a very traditional background. My dad was a coal miner, so I come from a, a working class community. Uh, I experienced the miners' strike. I feel very strongly about working class struggles, actually, the struggles of the railway workers, for for, for instance, at the minute, I feel very um, allied to people who work in the fossil fuel industry. I mean, that's my background. So I I did go on to study science. I, I did a PhD in molecular biophysics. I was studying how proteins and sugars interact, and I did some postdoctoral research in that. I found it difficult to articulate and, and, and network in a, in a system that's very sort of, I guess, male and middle class. And I think really uh, women and especially working class women, and I'm guessing women who aren't racialized as white, would really benefit from, from mentors when they're in the scientific community. And I also learned a lot about how to think about things, I guess. And then I've worked in the NGO sector for some years, and through that you you learn the, the the limitations I think of the civil society and the sort of charities in particular that are, are are not supposed to be they're sort of set up in some ways to not try and fully challenge the system in which they operate in, so they can often come across as a sticking plaster. And there are businesses, charities at the end of the day, you know, they're there to um, provide employment. They learn and learn and learn things in that. And I worked with corporations on corporate social responsibility, understand something of that world, and again, its limitations. And then in two thousand and eight, had the financial crash, and I realised I knew nothing about economics. And I was obsessed, as I would say, for about three years. And I ended up sort of opening up a, an economics lecture series with something called street school economics, because I used to go on the streets and teach people what I'd learned, because I think it's really, really important to have a basic amount of economic literacy. And the reason I say that is because what has happened under neoclassical and neoliberal economics is that it's been sort of, first of all, it's taken over economic institutions as the only form of economics when there's actually nine different schools of economics and they all have their strengths and weaknesses and perspectives. And it's also sort of this, there's this idea and it's really, really crucial to these times that we have to protect the economy. And so the economy has been sort of sold to us as if it's an emergent property of nature. And nature is like amazing. Things things emerge. So you have what uh, atoms get up to and they emerge into molecules and molecules into organelles and into cells and cells into organs in your body and, and creatures and, and ecosystems and so on. So nature's amazing like that. Economics is a political choice and politics is um, emergent from within the paradigm that you operate in. It's not the only political economy we could get to choose. In fact, there's a very beautiful book that came out in the last couple of years by David Graeber and, and David Wengro, which goes into sort of deep archaeology and anthropology about why we're here and what other ways in which human beings have organised. So, you know, after <laughs> studying economics, I 
then studied how things change because one of the things is that you sort of understand the kinds of change you'd like to see in the world. You think, well, obviously we need this or we need that, we need less of this, more of that. And and people seem to think that the way change happens, or at least in some cases, is that you just tell everybody what a great idea something is. But that tends to not be how things change, actually. It can be a part of it. How things change, especially when there's entrenched power, requires, at least in part, social movements. And so I've been studying social movement theory and, and, and other theories and understanding how to organise uh, mass civil disobedience. And so in... 2016, I went to think very deeply. Actually, my, part of my practice is to pray and and, and work in more sort of sacred and magical ways, um, which is I know not everybody <laughs> a cup of tea, but it's part of my practice, and I could say more about that. But and to um, to think and work with others on on launching a movement for mass civil disobedience, which we did in in the autumn of 2018, uh, which really sort of caught the zeitgeist and took off an Extinction Rebellion spread to 75 countries in a matter of months. It was very amazing and also overwhelming. Wow. So I have a few questions that just might um, help our listeners understand a few things. So I do have friends who have studied uh, economics, very much have talked about neoclassical and neoliberal economics, but can you explain what the, the neo part indicates for those who might not understand? By the way, you might be interested to know that there were statistical studies that show that economic students end up being more selfish as people. <laughs> Bless your friends. And, and and part of the reason is because human beings, human beings believe the stories that we tell ourselves. And what gets taught in neoclassical economics is um, human beings are selfish. And actually, human beings are much more complex than that. The neo uh, in in neoclassical and neoliberal uh, relates to th- there's been the classical forms of um, economics, and then they, they they were sort of upgraded and made very sort of mathematical. So the uh, neoclassical economics, I don't really know if you need all this level of detail, but it it's it, it's based on the idea of a consumer and a, and a factory, and it sort of builds quite a sort of mathematical model of the world. And it's sort of built from there. And it's been it's been quite heavily debunked by a uh, a professor Steve Keen from a different school of economics in a book called Debunking Economics. It sort of goes on to explain the sort of mathematical basis. It's trying to sort of model the economy as if it's steady state, where a, a more dynamical form of of modeling through people like uh, I think Schumpeter and others is other people think is more appropriate. And Steve Keen actually um, predicted the financial crisis before it happened because he was using a different form of of, of model. So it, it's telling you something like. As a scientist, it's telling me something about the model of, of neoclassical economics when it created a problem that it didn't know it was going to create and it didn't know how to explain it. So essentially, the systems in which we're living in, especially economical ones, are absolutely not working for us. Um, they're not working for the planet first, but eventually, do you think that will catch up as a result of association with destroying the planet and therefore harmful to us? Well, I, I, I wouldn't sort of 
be dogmatic in saying they're absolutely not working for us. They're working very well for some people because their purpose is to um, accumulate power. And so the six, I think something like six billionaires who own as much wealth as half the planet. So in some ways, you could say it's working very well for them. And also, we know from the data that when economies grow to a border, I think it's something like $20,000 per capita sort of per person levels that there's an increase in well-being. So, you know, when you're thinking about economic systems, we we shouldn't be thinking about throwing the babies out with the bathwater. There are good things. And, And one of the issues is that people tend to think of this current economic system as being about businesses and markets, but businesses and markets have existed before this form of um, economic system and they can exist beyond it and the good things within this system can carry on. And you do have really great suggestions for making change. So, you know, Mariana Mazzucato has written about mission-based economics, a form of mission-based capitalism. And um, there's the ideas around stakeholder capitalism and regenerative forms of capitalism. I would argue we haven't got a functional capitalism now. Other people talk about degrowth, about circular economics, about bioregional economics. So there's there's like massive loads of ideas out there. It's just that the because the uh, power is concentrated in a few hands and obviously they tend to fund think tanks and um, politicians all go along with 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 what they're wanting and and, and saying um, is it going to catch up with us of course it already is you can't keep extracting from the planet and you can't keep excreting pollution it's got its limitations it's reached the limits to growth as the club of rome predicted and we are increasingly suffering the consequences. I, th- I think right now there's um, a conference on tipping points and we think uh, four or five of the Earth's really crucial uh, systems are, are, are hitting tipping points right now. And as, as they as they go, the life support systems of the Earth start to go into meltdown, start to change and be destroyed. And we don't know um, what it's going to be like when it flips into what some people call the hothouse earth scenario and and how much life can be sustained in that area. And we just really shouldn't be going there. So what the um, Deutsche Bank economist said was, on the one hand, if we follow what the Greenies want and look at, I'm, I'm paraphrasing them, obviously, if we follow what the green folks want and we challenge economic growth as an idea, then this civilization has finished. And if we carry on growing the economy in the way it is and it's destroying the planet, this civilization's finished. So <laughs> we, we've got to come up with something else. Basically, we're finished. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's finished. But, you know, to be honest, it's it, it, even as somebody from the, you know, privileged Northern Hemisphere and... Um, living these days a more middle-class life, I think it's actually quite sort of stressful. I've, I've raised two boys in the, in this uh, in these de- times, and I, I don't think this is the best form of humanity that we can come up with. I think there's something else to emerge, and so that's um, we should be curious and interested about what else we could do as well as trying to repair the damage that we've done. We are certainly living in a sub-optimal humanity that's for sure I did actually want to um, ask you about uh, reaching tipping points because um, when the media talks about the fact that we're reaching um, a tipping point I don't feel like in my immediate life or social circles it causes enough urgency to um, create change I almost think it's almost as if the tipping point has to be happening 
um, in your garden or affecting your daily routine for for you to want to really be angry and cross about things and I was wondering you know do you have do you have any thoughts on why that's the case you know why why isn't the things that we're watching through the screen on tv or through social media enough to really pull at our at our heartstrings and think okay it's not affecting me now but it could affect me in five years why aren't I angry about it well, I mean, there's, it's a really great question and there's lots of answers to it, actually, because it will depend on the specific person. But I would, first of all, not really blame the person because, again, we, we are made by the systems that we're grown into. And what this system does is we get very stressed, but then we sort of learn to shut down and just reconfigure around what's already happening. It's, 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 it's common that people do that. And that's how, unfortunately, that's how Holocaust happen. People, people just go into sort of self-protection mode and it's left to a handful, you know, very few people to stand up and, and resist. And, um, I think what people need to understand is that this, crisis is not something that you, that's going to happen to somebody else somewhere else at some other time. And in fact, there's a very sort of scary psychological theory called terror management theory, because when when you're asking a question like that, Laura, I'm, I'm thinking about in particular fellow parents who have got absolutely an investment in the future. And why would a, a, a parent not be on the streets fighting for the future of their children. Well, first of all, maybe they're not convinced that being on the streets is going to make a difference and maybe they're not feeling some agency. There can be that. But there, there is something about the system that's just keeping us too stressed to move. And also with terror management theory is this idea that, and it's, it's quite an out there thing, but that a parent would rather their own children die than have to face up to a system that gets them to not have to think about their own death. So a parent would rather their own children die than look at a system. It's, it's really dark, isn't it? And, and where that comes from is looking at cultures where the examples that are being given are things like um, the Incas where children were thrown off the top of a tower in, in, in sacrifice or if it would be um, the, you know, the mother of a jihadi who, who believes her son's now going you know, to, to be with Allah or whatever. But actually what I would say is I don't think there's anything worse than, than consumerism that gets us to stay in a box, be narcissistic, just focus on our needs. There's sort of consumerism and, and, and pressured employment systems and situations that get us to just stay in our boxes, separated from each other and unable to think broadly about life. And so, you know, the people act as if terror management theory is true, is a product of a system that wants us to just keep in our roles as producers and consumers. That's what we're supposed to be here. We, everything's talked about, oh, what do consumers... I'm not a consumer, I'm a, I'm a human being. Um, I don't want to be thought about as a consumer. Going back um, to what you were saying about, you know, um, parents not potentially not wanting to, you know, rally rally on the streets like you know I'm, I'm happy to share my view on that I um I personally don't see myself as part of the solution of rallying on the streets and I don't know whether that's because I don't yet at this point want that to be a part of my identity or if I if my family and friends thought that I was all of a sudden this extinction rebellion that you know that would be the end of our friendship because they would put me in this new box of radical wacky person but why is it in 2018 when Extinction Rebellion, you know, came about and spread so quickly that 
that you as a co-founder thought that mass civil disobedience was a solution to all the things that are happening? I mean, in short, because I and others had studied social movement theory and studied how things change. And, you know, you you have a vote because of the actions of the suffragists and the suffragettes, uh, the the civil rights movement, the Indian independence movement, the the fact the right to roam in the UK, the fact that you can go out for a walk in the countryside, the the fact they have a weekend that you might have paid holidays. By the way, all of these things that Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to take away, listen to what he's been saying very worryingly. Uh, have been fought for the fact that you can even have trade unions again those rights are being eroded so we we only have the rights that we fight for there is a tendency in humanity and that we now know the neurophysiology of this another bit of an obsession at the minute Um, we understand how human beings can be in in different neurological states neurophysiological states so there are you know and they can add a lot of sort of jargony words to this if you want but um, there is basically the sort of states of a, a very sort of human beingness, which is in connection to life. Some people call it the ventral vagal system. It's curious and it's playful and it's empathetic and it's cooperative. And that is a, a, a physiological state that you can be in. And there's another one that's associated with the um, sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, freeze type of mechanisms, where it's very easy to set people up in pol- polarisation with each other. You can have in-group, out-group effects, uh, people are trying to protect their sense of identity. People don't want to be associated with being a certain thing or, you know, with this group or that group. And I think that's something that we really have to work on as a social movement is is this concept that there are some people that are activists and some people that aren't. You know, we're human beings and we want a better world and we want a, a world to exist, a, a living world for our children. I'm a, you may have gathered a bit of a bookaholic. There's a, a fantastic book by, called The Entangled Activist by Anthea Lawson, which is all about this sort of word, really, you know, why some people look at activism and go, ugh, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Because, you know, frankly, activism has and carries on involving sort of shaming and blaming and self-righteousness and that sort of vibe. Who wants to be around that? You know, if, if, that, if that's how how it's coming across, of course, we are misrepresented in the media as well. Uh, sometimes they don't know what to say about us because they, they sort of like to call us... Um, you know, there's different different labels, and they're sort of never quite sure which one to to, to play on us. Are we are we sort of um, champagne socialists, or are we sort of dolls grounding hippies? You know, it's they never. It seems like they've not quite decided what which label to give us, so that people like yourself go, "Ooh, I don't want to be involved in that." But really, it, it, there's lawyers, there's doctors, there's parents, there's grandparents. You know, there's people from all walks of life. I think our oldest arrestee was about ninety five. And not everybody has to get arrested, by the way, involved in this thing. And um, people generally have a really amazing time, you know, feeling in purpose and feeling like they're fighting for something that matters. And and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but in, in 2018, when um, Extinction Rebellion, you know, started, I actually was um, living in Sydney in Australia. And I remember seeing it on the news and and actually, you know, going back to what you were just um, saying about identity, I... I was a bit like, yeah, you know, I I did sort of roll my eyes at it because at the time, 
I didn't feel the urgency about the world that I feel now. But also I did kind of roll my eyes and be like, oh, like I wouldn't do that as if I was on some, you know, gold throne somewhere. Whereas now, actually, I really respect people who go out and do that. I'm still not brave enough to do that. And maybe one day I will feel the urgency to go out there. But I do I do find I do find the line between being an activist in 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 more direct ways, like going out and rallying in the streets and then being an activist in your own way. It's quite interesting what tips people. And I wondered if I wondered if being part of the movement since 2018, you'd kind of picked up on what you think tips people or sways people to to pick up a sign and and join the anger out on the roads. I think probably what makes the biggest difference for people is to think about these dates where we talk about what's going to be happening on the planet, the food systems collapsing, and they think about people in their life that they care about and how old they're going to be. And they think about the life that they've got to live. And they think, I, I a common phrase is, I want my grandchildren to know that I did everything that I could. That's the thing that really does it for people. It can also be a particular care for the oceans or how how we're treating animals in industrial animal ag- agriculture, you know, animal rebellion, or it could, could be people really caring about what's going off in our bodies. You know, the, we, we now know that the human body is ingesting a credit card size amount of plastic every two weeks, you know, and there are forever chemicals in our bodies. When, when you understand that and... I, I mean, I, another thing that really, well, for me as a as a as a mother, as a woman, to know that forever chemicals like uh, dioxins are stored up in my body, it always makes me cry. This the only way that I'll get rid of those dioxins is you know there's two mechanisms for them coming out of a woman's body. One is that you dump it into your placenta and hand it on to your baby, and the other is that you hand it over through your breast milk. And it's still better to breastfeed, by the way, still breastfeed. Why isn't that a headline? Why isn't that a headline on a newspaper making every single woman who's pregnant in 2022 and everybody who's had a child in the last 30 years absolutely fuming? Why isn't stuff like that being put in, sorry, I'm getting angry about it now, um, being put out on adverts to make the next generation aware of the world that we are living in? Well, I I think it's not, really for the next generation either. I think it's for us that are already here to do something about it. I mean, I think it's amazing what young people have done through, you know, Greta Thunberg's leadership, Fridays for the Future, the Sunrise Movement. And it's got to be a collaboration between all of us at all ages, actually. I think it's not down to any one of us to to fight this alone. It's about being human beings and, and what kind of world we want to live in. And it is about waking up, you know, and I think, like you said about your golden throne, and thanks for sort of owning that, Laura, because I think that, you know, I have that as well. I have a side of me that just, you know, wants to sit in comfort, of course, like, and we all we all deserve to rest and have some pleasure in life. And I think something about fight when you use a language, even like fighting for a better future, it, it should be... It needs to be fun. You know, John Lennon said what the system can't cope with is nonviolence and humour. You know, we should have fun with it so as well. But it is actually also really painful to, to know things like what I've just told you about plastic and forever chemicals. But yeah, what, 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 I, what I wanted to say was when we're thinking about our roles in change, people have different roles. So there are businesses, for example, and I, I hope there'll be some at this summit, 
that are, are, are coming up with new products that are, use beautiful techniques like biomimicry uh, so that they, they're not producing forever chemicals and they're still cool modern fabrics or processes or whatever. Happy days, as far as I'm concerned, right, for these ecology of businesses to be emerging at this time. They're sometimes called teal businesses. Uh, we, 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 many of us admire the B Corporations movement. The concept of regenerative leadership as well. So wherever a person feels most in service to the world of change, there has to be an ecology that comes together. And so for some people, it's um, raising the alarm. And that's what Extinction Rebellion did manage to do with others successfully. Once the alarm's raised, it's partly we have to build the new world. And that's what some of these businesses are doing. And we also have to stop the old world from destroying us in the meantime. And that's, I think, a very interesting point right now, because what we still have on the whole is so-called activism and this the, the folks that are trying to stop things separated from businesses and organisations that are trying to build the new ways. And this is a sort of a bit of a Western th- point to make, actually, because it doesn't work like this in other parts of the world. And I think there needs to be more connectivity between those two because a good ecosystem has has flow of resources and communications. And so I was really delighted to see Patagonia as, I'm guessing, the leading B Corporation uh, saying very recently that, that, that their, their founders saying that all of their profits now, apart from the ones that need to be reinvested into the business, are going to, I don't particularly like this phrase, but save the planet, right? Trying to save the planet. And Patagonia have, by the way, have given some funding to Extinction Rebellion. I start to sound like I'm sponsored by them, I realise, but uh, it, it wasn't that much money. We could do with some more, by the way, guys. Um, and 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 support other, other forms of activism. Ecosia, for example, the search engine, the plants, tree, they uh, gave some of their employees time off to join the rebellion. What we need is is for those emergent regenerative leaders for B corporations and businesses to understand, don't just leave it to activists. If if they're going to bring back fracking in this country, for example, we've raised the alarm now. We're going to have to get on and stop that from happening. And in the last week or so, uh, in fact, just yesterday, 50 activists were put on remand who were trying to stop oil from coming out of the terminal in the south of England, uh, just stop oil protesters. And so there, there has to be a resistance that actually stops the harm from happening. And there isn't enough capability and capacity at the moment to stop that harm. And so those that are trying to build the new world need to lend some support in the way that they can into the efforts of resistance. I would call it protection energy. And I often use the analogy of the immune system in the body. So the immune system, the the, the body will uh, happily integrate many different organisms. We're not one person here. There's a kilogram of bacteria and, you know, fungus and yeast and all sorts. There's all sorts going off in these bodies of ours. And many of them we, we, we couldn't live without. Gut microbiome is the seat of human health. And, and yet if one of them starts to become harmful, the body uh, will, 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 will do something about it. It'll start to repair the harm that's done and it'll sort of have, have, have a word with the organism and it'll either mutate and change into something less harmful over time or it gets taken out it gets removed and we as a human family right now my strong opinion is that we need to recognize the harm that's been doing understand that it's coming from a system that's sociopathic and is not going to change it's going to fake change 
And it's contingent on us to not only build a new world, but to stop the harm from happening. And you do that through relationship and relationship comes through dialogue. And that's why I'm going to be going to this summit and and, and talking to people, because I think we're all, uh, you know, to use a bit of a boring phrase, we're all in this together, right? We're all human beings together. If I could ask you to maybe give me one to four sentences about why the next generation should want to be a part of the solutions and the change that we need to see, what would they be? Yeah, it's a deep intergenerational injustice. And if the first reaction is to be angry as fuck, then absolutely fair enough, because it is deeply unjust. Um, And the, the the generation probably I'm fifty the one above actually but I'm not I hope it's clear I'm not backing away from my responsibilities and I haven't been for my life actually but still the, there's been generations that had free education you could you could get housing in a relatively easy way you had jobs for life you got a nice pension and they're the ones that have just decided some of them <laughs> that can members of the Conservative Party to, to have a, a prime minister who is you know, about to poison the countryside. I mean, fracking, by the way, there's birth defects within a mile of every fracking site. They go up by a very, very significant amount. They're issuing new oil and gas licences. So I think I think the point is you'll be part of this crisis one way or another. And the sort of there's a joy in finding your purpose in life. The system that we live in is anti-life and it just wants you to be a cog in the machine. Find your purpose, find your role in this change and actually see it as a very exciting time to be alive. Follow the possibility of making a huge difference and not just participating in the green like the generations above have to be sort of comforted and uh, forced to be in a in a in a situation where you're extracting resources from other parts of the world and 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 creating this mayhem. So actually, we have to let that go now, and we have to move on, and do something different. And I would see that as a positive rather than a negative. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October, 2022, in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.